0: You're listening to the Seminary of Hard Knocks podcast, episode 14, and we're going to overrule some objections, Your Honors.
1: Welcome to the Seminary of Hard Knocks, a podcast designed to help you lead with confidence and clarity. These are practical solutions for your ministry that you probably didn't learn in seminary. Now, let's join your host, Seth News, who still believes in Santa Claus.
0: Hey, everybody. Merry Christmas. This is dropping the week of Christmas, and I know it's a hard week to do a lot of different things. A lot of churches are involved in a lot of stuff. My church is no different. We have... Three Christmas services coming up, uh, two on Christmas Eve. We're actually having Christmas services on Christmas morning. So for those of you who are out there communicating about Christmas, who are in part of the services, who are pastors, helping families through this time of year, which is either joyous or difficult, depending on the situations you may be encountering. God bless you guys. I really pray that God does some amazing things in your service. So this week we're just dis- we're discussing, you know, through the Christmas season about the birth of Christ. And Jesus is the center of our faith. And so this week I brought on a guest who is going to talk to us about how we sometimes can answer objections to Christianity. This is episode 14. So if you want to go check out all the show notes, because there are plenty, uh, you can go to the blog at SethMuse.com and see this week's blog, which I released today, the same day. Or there's actually a page with the podcast on it, and it's the show notes. So show notes can be found at SethMuse.com slash episode 14. So you can check those out. And my guest today, you're going to want to go there because there's a lot of great stuff. In uh, on in the links section of that uh, of the show notes and in the podcast. So uh, sorry of the blog. So today my guest is Justin Bass. It's his doctor Justin Bass, and he has a PhD from Dallas Theological Seminary in New Testament studies. His recent book is entitled "The Battle for the Keys: Revelation One Eighteen and Christ's Descent into the Underworld." That's an incredible. A title for a dissertation and a book, so he's going to talk about that a little bit, too. Um, he got a Master of Theology from DTS and a business degree in entrepreneurship from Southern Methodist University. Uh, he's currently the lead pastor of 1042 Church in Frisco, and he's a professor at Dallas Christian College and Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, he is form- he's actually formally debated Dan Barker, uh, Dr. Richard Carrier, and Dr. Bart Ehrman. And uh, we'll talk about a f- we'll talk about a few of those in the podcast itself. Um, he's married his wife Allison, and he have two kids, uh, Ariana and Christian. Hope I said that right. And uh, he's just really a big Lord of the Rings nut and such a fun guy. This dude knows his stuff. So uh, I'm gonna shut up so we can get to the good stuff. Thank you for being here. Go to SethMuse.com episode 14 slash episode 14 and get these show notes. And I hope you really love this conversation because I did. Well, hey, everybody, welcome to the podcast. And today I have a very special guest. Uh, Justin Bass is on the show. Justin, thanks for being here. Great to be here. Um, So, Justin, tell us about... Your ministry and your your past, and just kind of who you are, and what you're involved with in the area, especially apologetics and other things that you're doing right now.
1: Yeah, I uh, I'm a pastor of a church plant about six years now, called Ten Forty Two Church. Uh, we, we meet in the colony at a at a hotel out there, and uh, I'm also a professor at part time professor at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. I teach Greek in the in the summers. And I teach uh, pretty much full-time. I'm still on on the technical side. I'm an adjunct, but I teach five classes a semester, so it's pretty much full-time. Yeah, that's full-time. At this this, uh, Bible college called Dallas uh, Christian College, and I teach there in the semesters. And then I also seek opportunities um, to really—I just have a passion for evangelism and apologetics. And so I I look for opportunities anywhere I can to speak at at colleges or churches or— do do evangelism on the streets or do debates with atheists or Muslims, things like that, so just uh just very passionate about about in any way I can to 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 proclaim Christ and him crucified
0: that's yeah and, and I've followed you for a while and kind of watched some of these things. I remember streaming an event called the Bible and beer consortium yes uh tell tell us about what that is what do you do there?
1: Yeah, so that's uh, it's an incredible ministry started by Ezra Boggs, and uh, he's got a great quote. He he says uh, there are no gospel-free zones, and his heart has always been to uh, show that uh, the the bar scene, you know, is not a gospel-free zone. And so, really, about six months before I met Ezra, he started this ministry, and uh, it really started with. Uh, uh, a Christian going into a, a bar bar, a pub, or a club, something like that, which sounds like the start of a joke. Yes, and <laughs> then uh, going in there and you know giving some sort of theological or apologetic type talk, and then having q and A, Q&A. and that's where the best part. That's the that's the best part of the ministry is when yeah. we get the Q and A, because anybody can ask anything they want, and um, you know they're not they're not in church. You know we're on their their grounds. And um, it's turned into really in the last few years we've done a lot more debates. So really, I think starting about 2013, we started to do debates. I did the I was uh, in fact the um, uh, the Christian in one of the first debates with an atheist, and uh, and I've done a few debates since then, and I've done a lot of a lot of uh, lectures and ginger man or different bars. In fact, earlier this year in March, I did one on. Um, uh, on on Fight Club, the movie Fight Club, and the Gospel of Jesus, so that was that was fun.
0: I think I remember seeing that. Yeah,
1: they haven't got that on on YouTube yet, but uh, eventually they will, and it, it will it will offend many many snowflakes. Let me tell you.
0: <laughs> I can't wait, I can't yeah, wait for that. It's, uh, it, so it was fun. So you've you've also been connected to uh, William Lane Craig. Like, what is your relationship there? How do you guys work together?
1: I, I don't really work with William Lane Craig. There's a um, um, great friend of mine, elder at our church, uh, Bo Bishop, who uh, is an apologist himself, philosopher, and he is very much involved with reasonable faith. He actually works for the ministry, he does a, a ton of awesome uh, leadership with them. Um, but I, I, I've met William Linkerd, but I'm not in any way okay associated with with the, with the ministry now.
0: I knew there was some kind of connection so it's a guy in your church in the elder mm-hmm. of your church. Okay.
1: Yeah, and in fact it was because of him that uh, you probably saw that William Lane Craig came to one of the Bible and Beer. Yes, that's the reasons. one I watched. Yeah, he gave he gave the talk on the resurrection and then a lot of great questions in the Q&A. It was so cool that night cuz because it was packed and it was really split, 50% probably atheist and 50 agnostic, you know, just seeker type thing. And then fifty percent um, Christians, and uh, it was really neat because we broke up the lines. On one side was all the unbelievers, and on the other side was all the believers. And they were just back and forth asking him questions. But it was mainly through <laughs> Bo at our church that that got William Lane Craig there. So yeah,
0: I actually what I watched, I was on the chat room of that in live stream, and, and was uh, listening to some of that conversation and just be taking part of that conversation while you guys were while he was up there talking. Uh, for part of it. So it was a really fun event. I mean, that's an interesting idea. And 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 I, what I noticed about that event, too, that was really interesting was it was so very calm. Like it was it was like a bar, but there's chairs and people are like sitting in rows and, and quietly paying attention. And it was so strange to see this bar that, and it never uh, happens there. In no, fact, and, and the, the and place
1: I've, we do it at the place we do it at is normally, I mean, they're normally mosh pits. I mean, it's normally
0: yeah. That was at the Profit Bar, right?
1: Yeah, it's normally hard rock bands. Yeah. And, and just people. When <laughs> and I was when I was them. in a,
0: when I was in bands, I've played on this, those stages. Yeah, I've played there. That's great. And, and that is it, what was so weird for me is knowing that how rowdy that place gets, and then it, to to tune into the live stream and it's just church looking you know and i'm like what yeah. is happening this is so great that people are tuned in like this to this subject in that environment that was really great
1: and that's and that's one of the great things about the ministry you know the so many people that would ne- that won't step foot in a church today and, and in fact uh, ezra has on the website many uh, atheists who have said this in, in their quotes and, and just affirming the ministry just saying that i won't go to a church but i'll come i'll come to the bible and beer events
0: yeah yeah, and that's, that's such a, that's such the call is to go to them, yes. to go where other people are. Um, you've had, uh, and I watched this one online too, um, you had a pretty good um, debate with Bart Ehrman not too long yes. ago. And and for those that don't know, Bart Ehrman is a religion professor at University of North Carolina and teaches in the department. He was Moody Bible Institute for a long time and is he wrote a book called Misquoting Jesus and several others. And claims that there are errors in the scripture, grammatic or you know, words are out of place that are enough to discredit or doubt the authenticity of scripture. So, how did that come about, and how do you think that went?
1: And just and just on on that last point you made, it's, it's this this really goes back to William Lane Craig. Yeah, I think he's the first to to coin this, but uh, there, there, he had this great. Um, discussion about Bart Ehrman's books and his arguments, and really there's a bad Bart and a good Bart. And Bart Ehrman himself kind of debates himself in his books, and so that's a perfect example of what you just said, because he does try to, you know, bring doubt on the uh, veracity of the New Testament um, documents as far as, you know, do we actually have what they wrote then? You know, they've been copied and copied and copied, but what's hilarious about that is when you go deeper into the book and especially in some of the footnotes in the very back of the book even in misquoting Jesus and you can find it in other interviews he's done people will say to him you know uh, he'll, he'll be interviewed by some some skeptic or an atheist and they'll say well what do you, you know what do you think uh, the New Testament actually said you know what what do you think it, it might have said and and Barnerman will say something like well it, it says pretty much what we have I mean, <laughs> I mean yeah he, he basically admits in other places, you know all these things he's acting like are a big deal. Really aren't. We really have substantially, you know, ninety nine percent proof. I mean the, the the New Testament. He just tries to make a big deal out of the, some of the differences that we do have in the manuscripts. A far bigger deal than than we need to make it. But
0: right, and and I think that's what came out in in the debate as well. Just that, you know, I I, I respect him as a scholar. I think he understands he's an incredible scholar the, he really is. the the scriptures. He understands the original languages so well and it's almost like one of those situations where you've gotten so like what well, your parents used to say you're too too big for your britches almost you know like you're yeah. you're smart so smart it's like you start to go it can't be this i, I must be wrong somewhere where he's like doubting himself in his arguments
1: yeah Maybe. and i think the, the 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 biggest problem with his scholarship and and with his books and, and i've said this in other lectures i did post the debate and and uh, talking about it and summarizing because I read all his books, you know, I read everything I could in preparation. Yeah, and and he basically he just nails the foundation. He really is solid when it comes to foundational, just the facts of early Christianity. When it comes to, mm-hmm. you know, just the basic bare minimum facts of the life of Jesus, the 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 early, you know how Christianity began. You know, even even, uh, textual criticism on the New Testament documents, he is so solid on so much of that. But he gets so biased when he gets to anything that starts to kind of become evidence or become kind of favorable to the truth of Christianity, then he kind of goes a different way. And and he just completely dismisses the, the, the points and the arguments that I think favor strongly uh, the truth of Christianity, and so that's that was my biggest struggle with him, and, and even just, you know, our debate, one of the main points, you know, probably my major point that I made at the debate over and over again that I felt like he did not answer, which um, goes back to this, is the fact that Jesus did, the historical Jesus did claim to be the Son of Man figure, and and right. he just would not have that, you know, he just, even though there are solid, even liberal scholars that he greatly respects, that that believed that a guy named Raymond Brown who wrote a an incredible two volume book on the on the death of Jesus, and he makes it clear that he that Jesus did claim to be the Son of Man, and if he did claim to be the Son of Man, then he did claim to be God. He did claim to be divine, and yeah. so
0: and that's what I don't think the American audience understands, and that's why I want to get into some of this: is how do we answer these questions? Because that is a very common objection that you know he never that Jesus never said he was God, and technically, if you look at the letter of the words, no, he never said that. But he said that in some contexts that would have been clearly understood then. So I want to get into this a little bit, have you kind of coach some of our listeners who might be pastors or or children's ministers or youth ministers or whatever, because we're all going to have that person in our life somewhere, whether it's family or in our ministries that comes to us with some of these arguments, some of these objections, I should say. And and, and they may not be founded in real truth, but they're so convinced that they are. So, so let's take that, for instance, that um, Jesus is his claim to be God. Someone comes up and asks us that and has a, has a challenge on that. How would we go about answering that question in an American context so that we can understand it?
1: Yeah, I'd start with, <clears throat> this is what makes Bart Ehrman, this is one, one of the main reasons why it was my dream to debate Bart Ehrman, because he really, when it comes to the a place of common ground like you know some place where we can launch from he's a great he's a great person to debate with because the common ground facts like i said about jesus and about early christianity and the new testament He's basically in agreement on the things that are just black and white, and so on. So he's not like, like some people you know, online that just <laughs> believe the, the strangest things about Christianity, that just have no idea what's going on. Bart is someone who knows the basic facts, and so I can start from there and then jump from them. And a great example of that is Bart Ehrman will say, and since he says it, I mean, this is what you know, modern scholarship agrees on uh, unanimously, which is the Gospel of John, Jesus does claim to be God. So when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, when uh, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So when, it, when we go to the Gospel of John, and they would also add books like the, the uh, Hebrews, Revelation, Colossians, basically what, what modern scholars would say are the later books, books that were written later in the first century, toward the end of the first century, it is very clear that Jesus is God. So the debate becomes, what about the earlier books that are closer to Jesus' life? So that's when we get to Mark and Matthew and Luke, and that's where the debate is. So for, for Bart Ehrman, even those books, the author is presenting Jesus as God, but according to Bart Ehrman and a lot of other scholars, Jesus himself did not claim that he was God. And so what I tried to do to demonstrate that he claimed to be God is, I had three main arguments, but to keep it simple, I argued that basically his earliest followers, we know that people like Peter, people like James, people like John, and we know Paul as well, who was very close to those guys, they all were saying Jesus was God. Right. And if they were all saying Jesus was God, you know, where did they get that from? You know, why, why are these first century Jews who believe in one true, the one true God, why are they suddenly worshipping this, human being that was crucified just a few years before them i mean what 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 on earth did that you know how did they start saying that and i think that's a, a deduction that they got it from jesus you know the reason why they're making this radical unprecedented claim and in, in ancient judaism is because jesus did
0: and died and they, for
1: it and di- and they're willing to die for it yeah and especially those those particular guys, uh, Peter and Paul, James. We know that they died for their faith. We, you know, even Bart Ehrman would would argue that um, that that's uh, uh, historically verifiable. And then the other one is the Son of Man claim. And so the Son of Man claim is kind of the the one of the best ways to go kind of behind, you know, not saying, okay, the Bible is the word of God, and look, Jesus claims to be God, therefore Jesus claimed to be God. No, taking it more. Kind of, kind of playing their game in a sense, but it's just basically historical criticism of the text and saying, okay, let's go back and what can we all agree Jesus actually did say? And that's why I go to the Son of Man claim because even liberal scholars, who, like I said, Bart Ehrman respects, agree Jesus and Mark in Matthew and Luke, he's claiming to be the Son of Man figure. And when you go back to Daniel, and you and you see who the Son of Man figure is, you see that the Son of Man figure is divine. He is this. Um, to use later Trinitarian language, the second person of of the Trinity, but to use Jewish language, he is the Son of Man. He is the one who goes before the Ancient of Days and is worshipped by all creation and is the King of God's Kingdom. And that's who Jesus claimed to be, according to Mark, according to Matthew, and according to Luke. And so, those are different ways, uh, you know, to go about it, but the wonderful thing is, is nobody debates that he claimed to be God in John. He did claim to be God in John, according to everybody, and so you just have to to, you know, you either believe John or you don't kind of thing.
0: Right. And that's what brings us to the second thing that we hear whenever we get to this part of the conversation. It, well, John was later and could have been changed or, you know, the, the first three are kind of the synoptics, you know, are, are together and they're earlier, but John is later. And so that adds to the legend of Jesus. So you hear that a lot about Jesus' claim to be, to be God, to be divine and the Messiah, and so, how would you answer that? I think we kind of hit on it a little bit, you know, because that kind of goes into the argument against Scripture um, that people will use, that it was later. So, what do we answer on that with John?
1: Yeah, with John particularly, and th- and this is why, like like in that debate, I'm focusing on Mark and Matthew and Luke, because sadly, you know, modern scholars, more, more liberal-leaning scholars today will just dismiss John. D- John is just legendary. He's just later. But if I was just going to focus on John, I would point you to, and I'd point your audience to uh, Richard Balcom, his book called uh, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, which is a very heavy tome kind of scholarly book, but it's excellent. But you can get a nice summary of those arguments in a very simple way in Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. So Tim Keller's uh, got a chapter, I can't remember what exactly it's called, but it's basically talking about how... uh, the Gospels are written by eyewitnesses, and he's basically getting all his arguments from Richard Balcom's um, uh, book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And Richard Balcom is considered to be, he's basically the Bart Ehrman of the uh, Christian side. So he's one of the top, along with N.T. Wright and some others, he's one of the top New Testament scholars uh, writing today. And he makes the, the argument that uh, he shows very detailed arguments of why the author of John is an eyewitness. And really he's going back to the early church, and even some scholars going back hundred years ago that were making these arguments. So there are some very solid arguments that John was written by an eyewitness. And so I, a simple way to, to answer that would be, I trust the early church. I mean, I think the early church got these things right. They were very meticulous about weeding out heresies and weeding out false documents. There were all these books that were written uh, in the second and third century that they rejected. But John, they didn't reject because they believe John the Apostle wrote that. And there's a lot of internal evidence as well that, you know, would, would be maybe too detailed to get into here. But basically, um, I, w- I would argue that G- that John, this is the Apostle John who was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, and he was uh, an eyewitness.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that's, that's great. I'm sitting here smiling. I'm going, this is good. This is exactly it. Um, I, I think that plays into a doubt on the authenticity of Scripture and i know that there's other places things like miracles that jesus did that you know we only we only see stuff like that in other kind of fairy tale type books you know legendary books right. uh and so it's a natural jump to think that this is made up because it is fantastic but if you're talking about a god outside of natural you know supernatural that can do these kinds of things that's not too it's not too hard to believe um so we look at the scripture, we look at miracles and i i know that's like a whole bunch right there. So, let's talk about when someone doubts the let's say we have a doubt for the the authenticity of scripture. That what it actually says. I think we i think we can say um that the scripture says what it has always said. You know, that that's a that's a easier leap to make there. But then we go, well does it mean what we say it means? Did what happened actually happen? Right. You know, and so what do you tell people when they bring that doubt on Scripture?
1: Yeah, I, uh, I would distinguish, too, uh, the reliability versus the divinity of Scripture. So we, you know, if we're, we're believers, we believe that the Scriptures are God-breathed. We believe that they are supernatural and, and divine in that sense. And I would say, if I was going to demonstrate that, I would, I would go to the prophecies. I would go to the certain prophecies that were written in the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament and then show how they were fulfilled in Jesus. And there's other prophecies too, but the big ones, the main ones, the ones that I think are most definitive, the kind of things that I would stand up and debate formally on, would be the prophecies. The reliability of scriptures is another is another issue, and for me, I mean honestly, I think that's a, it's a low bar to me. I mean I think it's really easily demonstrated, especially with the New Testament. I mean just as you said, when it comes to actually the words that are written on the page and the manuscripts, the New Testament's the you know the best attested uh, group of books that we have from the ancient world. And we have more manuscripts; they're written closer to the time that they were written. I mean, it's it's just an incredible um, uh, and, and, and just an incredible um, group of books. And when you compare it to any other ancient work, um, uh, I mean, we're talking you know 1,000, sometimes 1400 years between when something was written and then the manuscript we have and when it comes to the new testament our earliest manuscript it's only a few verses but we have a manuscript of from john in fact that goes back to 125 AD oh man and it's and it's called P52 P for papyri and it's a it's a piece from john 18 when jesus is speaking about how he is the king and and uh, Pilate saying what is truth That little, that's on a little tiny uh, uh, papyri manuscript and that dates back to 125 AD and and if you remember the Gospel of John was written in 90 AD and so we're, we're looking at about a 25 uh, I mean a 35 year uh, space between when John wrote and when we have the first manuscript showing up in history I mean that's just unprecedented and incredible but when it comes to the actual content the actual story is it reliable meaning when Matthew says this happened, or when John says this happened, did it actually happen? Is it telling the truth yeah and and really to co- to compare it to other ancient works, it doesn't even have to be a hundred percent accurate to be reliable i mean when 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 classicists and scholars of of ancient history look at certain historians like Herodotus and Josephus, if they just get sixty seventy percent of the things that they're talking about right, they're considered reliable
0: <laughs> See, yeah. so,
1: so so to be reliable. It's kind of a, uh, you know, there's a lot of gray area with that. But I think if, if what I'd want to do is I'd want to take it on a case-by-case basis, whether it be a book, each book of the New Testament, or it would be each event that we're talking about. You know, Jesus, for example, feeding the 5,000, you know, where he feeds the 5,000 with mm-hmm. the fish and the bread. That miracle is pretty incredible because it happens to be in all four of our Gospels. It's, it's the only miracle that's in all four of our gospels. It's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And a lot of a lot of even more liberal minded scholars will look at that and go, you know, they might not believe a miracle happened, but they're like, look at that. I mean, we have all these different witnesses pointing to this same event. There, there something that must have happened. Jesus must have done something that convinced people that he fed thousands of people. Yeah. And so and so really when you get down to it is the 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 reliability of the document can't prove the miracle in that sense. All we can say is, is we can show you that we can trust that this person said that he saw this, or this person uh, Peter is saying this happened, or, Je- or Paul is saying this happened. Paul says, I saw Jesus. You know, we, can, we know that that document is telling the truth when Paul says that. Now, whether Je- Paul actually saw Jesus now there's other things coming into play, right? I mean, because yeah. now you, you really have to extend faith to believe that Paul is seeing, you know, the resurrected Jesus. But that it's reliable, that it's reliable that Galatians and Corinthians is telling us what Paul really believed, that he did see the risen Jesus, it is definitely, uh, it's as reliable as any uh, ancient work that we, we know of. More reliable than any of them.
0: Yeah, and I think when pastors get in the weeds, it comes... It- it's always about knowing knowing the scripture because I think people are 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 wanting to argue this and say, okay, l- we know that the Bible's not reliable, so tell me how you know this stuff is true. And the sad thing is, is that the Bible is such a reliable document; it has been poured over by so many people, and it's like the best source. And then we can't use it, you know. Right. It's like the 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 secular arena doesn't really want to hear that. You know, they don't want to hear that the Bible is a good source because it's obviously biased. And And this, and
1: this is a good, this is where Bart Ehrman's helpful again, because Bart Ehrman will chastise people who talk like that because Bart Ehrman builds his whole historical case on what he considers very unreliable texts. I mean, he will say that the new Testament books are unreliable and yet he gains so much historical knowledge to write big fat books on what happened to Jesus, his disciples, and early Christianity. And so we I think we can demonstrate not only that we can gain all these facts, but that it's also reliable and that it's also supernatural. So we can take it uh, a lot of steps higher, but he at least shows that we can gain these certain facts from the Bible, even if you assume that it's unreliable.
0: Exactly. And and, and the last one I want to hit on here is the resurrection. Um this event is the cornerstone of Christian faith. And we place our trust in the fact that this happened. So there's a lot of things that surround that. And, and, and by and large, that's one of the hard ones to believe. I mean, flooding the earth and all that, that's, that's tough. You know, that's tough to believe. Uh, fire coming down and someone riding a chariot up of, of fire to heaven. That's hard to believe. But somebody coming back to life without like medical assistance is is a big one. So when people challenge that we have some evidences for that and we've hit on a few there, but just give me a real quick nutshell of what the answers there uh, would be. Well, how would we talk about that with people?
1: Yeah. One thing I, I like to do is kind of a curveball Cause it, it's the, uh, it's the uh, way that, that C.S. Lewis actually came to Christ. And it's, uh, you know, you mentioned before that people will say it's a fairy tale. <clears throat> and I like to turn that around and, 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 Learn from uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and what he said to C.S. Lewis, which is, yes, it is a fairy tale, but it's the fairy tale that really did happen. This is the one fairy tale that actually happened in history. Yeah, that's good. It's it's the true myth, and that and that conversation that that happened up until about three in the morning with C.S. Lewis, actually is was one of the things that he says led him to believing that not just that God exists, but Jesus is definitely God. And so that's just kind of a, I think that's a fun, you know, more you know, engaging the imagination way of, of talking about it. But when you get to the hardcore historical facts, I mean, this is why the resurrection is just, I mean, if, it, if any Christian apologists, any, you know, William Lane Craig, everybody, you know, the one thing that they want to debate when it comes to early Christianity is the resurrection, because our evidence for the resurrection, the evidence, and as, again, I want to make it clear, the, the historical evidence doesn't prove that Jesus rose from the dead. But what it does is, is it shows, it demonstrates that there are there the 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 actual rising of Jesus from the dead is the best explanation of all the facts that we have. Yes. So so it doesn't you know give a hundred percent proof, but it 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 basically eliminates any other option that you could that that can even be imagined. And so really, the best option to to go with, if you're not going to believe Jesus rose from the dead, is to be just agnostic and just say. You know, I don't know what happened. All the evidence does point to it, but I don't know what happens. But, I mean, just, just to give a quick thing that that people should take a look at and focus on would be 1 Corinthians 15, the very first eight verses of uh, that chapter. Because what's going on there is Paul is quoting an ancient creed. yeah, A creed that goes back to within about two to three years of the death of Jesus. And this is something again, Bart Ehrman. Everyone agrees on this. is not debated by anyone. That that creed that Paul is quoting there goes all the way back to within a few years. Sometimes people even say months for after the resurrection of Jesus. Yeah, it's like
0: the first doctrinal statement.
1: Yeah, right. it's basically it's the true Apostles' Creed because this is something that James that that uh, Paul, that Peter and John. I mean, this was this was composed before Paul even converted, and so. What they were saying was, is Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, referring to the Old Testament scriptures. Mm-hmm. He was buried, and then on the third day he rose again. And then it, it says he appeared to Kephos, which is the Aramaic word for Peter. Mm-hmm. And then it says he appeared to the twelve, so it mentions the twelve disciples. And then it says he appeared to more than five hundred at once. And then Paul seems to—a lot of scholars think Paul is adding this as a little commentary on it. He says, "...many of them are still alive, though some have fallen asleep," kind of a, as a clear apologetic, basically saying to the people in Corinth, the Christians in Corinth, hey, you know, don't go to Disneyland for vacation this year. Go go to Jerusalem and meet some of the people that, that uh, saw the risen Jesus, you know? Go meet some of those 500 people. They're still alive. You can talk to them and ask them what it was like to see the risen Jesus. And then it says, and he appeared to James, who was Jesus' brother, and then he appeared to all the apostles, and then last of all, and that's probably added to the creed, because Paul says, last of all, he appeared to me, as a direct claim that yeah. appeared to him. But, I mean, we're looking at, you know, well over 513-plus eyewitnesses of this event. Uh, you know, in addition, we have, of course, the, the evidence for the empty tomb. And then what I like to do is just go big picture and just say, you know, what started Christianity, Tell me what happened that caused this movement to begin, because when your messiah gets crucified, when he dies, you know what that means? That means you go out and get a a new messiah, or you go out and get a job, or you do something else. You don't go around saying that your messiah rose from the dead. And we know this because there were 14 other movements like this around that time. And in all those 14 other messianic-type movements, when the leader died, the movement ended. There is no continuation of any of those movements. It's only with the Christian movement. It's only with this movement of the of Jesus of Nazareth that for some reason they start running around Jerusalem saying he, has, he is alive again. And so you have to that's a historical question that people have to answer. How did that begin? What gave them their, their belief in, in Jesus rising from the dead? How, how did that occur? This explosive. I mean, Big Bang. I mean, what caused this Big Bang in the first century between Jesus's death and his disciples proclaiming from the rooftops that he's risen from the dead? I think that's a that's one of the best arguments and best questions to ask uh, the skeptical world.
0: Yeah, and that's uh, actually scriptural in, in in Gamaliel when he counsels the the exactly. Sanhedrin. That's exactly what he says. He goes, "How many people have come before this guy and they died, and the movement died off?" And he and his his counsel was that if if this guy is legit, or if he's not legit, then this movement's gonna die too, so don't worry about it and let's stop fighting about it. But if it is real, you may find yourself fighting against God Himself. That's right. And, and that was like Gamaliel, Paul's mentor, all that kind of wise counsel and and right there as they were deciding Jesus' fate.
1: And I love and I love that argument too, because if you think about it, Luke, you know, Luke is recording that speech in, in the book of Acts. Mm-hmm. And when the, when the Book of Acts was written, even, even if if you go with a liberal dating, more conservative dating that I would place it is around 62 A.D., liberals would place Acts somewhere, somewhere maybe in the uh, 80s. But either way, what's fascinating about that is the Christian movement by the end of the first century was nothing but maybe tens of thousands of people. It wasn't even a large, you know, it, it was like less than 0. .000% of the Roman Empire at that time. And yet, post that, Christianity went on to overtake the Roman Empire, and of course it went on to become the largest religion in the entire world. And so it's just fascinating to see that Gamaliel and Luke recording that story is speaking so much better than he even knew. Because look how dominant (laughs) that faith went. I mean, it did not in any way die out. In fact... Anybody who fights against it find, finds themselves fighting against God.
0: Yeah, it's pretty dang unstoppable. Yes. Um, and and I've, I love that argument. I love how that plays into because that is exactly what we have, is that there is a, a fighting against God himself. And, and in fact, that's um, you mentioned something else. Uh, there was a kid that came to me in my youth ministry uh, a couple of years ago who was from Jewish background and uh, just a great kid great kid lots of questions and one of the first things he asked me was okay you talk about this this jesus rising from the dead how do you know that happened like why do you believe that and i said my my only my first response seemed to be good enough for him you know because it was strong was that well the bible records over 500 eyewitnesses of seeing him and and it's like you got into that and it's just he goes wow People saw this guy. I, I it's hard to kill a movement when people are willing to die for it. And, and and you're like, I don't know if this is true. I don't know if this is a real thing, but they certainly do. You know, and they're willing to go to the stake. They're willing to go to the cross. They're willing to be boiled. You know, that's it's and, inser- Paul, and
1: Paul and Paul is a perfect I said Peter and James too, but Paul's a perfect one because like I, like I just quoted in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, but also in 1 Corinthians 9, 1, and in Galatians 1, Paul is saying, I saw the risen Jesus. He appeared to me. And we know that Paul also died by having his head removed from his body under Nero. We know he was martyred for his faith. The historical facts of him claiming that Jesus appeared to him and dying for his faith are as sure as you can know from history. And so, just with Paul himself, I think the evidence is amazing, because... Yeah. What 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 changed Paul? Because we know he also completely transformed from a persecutor of the church yes. to suddenly a follower of Christ and the greatest apostle after that. And he believed Jesus appeared to him. You read his letters, I mean they're they're not only brilliant, but they're also full of love and full of just, you know, 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter. I mean this man was not a maniac. This was not a David Koresh. This was not a crazy cult leader. This was an incredible human being that clearly believed Jesus appeared to him and clearly gave his life for it. And so just, I mean, some people have said Paul himself is enough to believe.
0: <laughs> yeah, Paul, Paul is a changed man for sure. And, and it's, you know, he'll die. Anybody could die for a lie. But very few people will ever die for a lie you know is a lie. Like if you know this guy did not rise from the dead, he did not really appear to me, and I'm staking my life on it, if on most people, I mean I'd I'd almost say everyone would probably go, Okay, yeah, you're right, I'm I'm lying. And not be willing to give their life for something like that. I know that's not a real strong argument, but I mean it's there and it's no, I, think so, that, I
1: think that's important for the so apostles. Clear. It's not it, it it loses its force once you go beyond the apostles. Yes. Because because one because when we think about any Christians who die for their faith, after the apostles are basically in the same league as you know Muslims who who fly planes in the buildings, believing that they're exactly. you know, they're going to go to paradise. But when you go to the apostles, the apostles knew, like you said, they knew what Paul knew whether Jesus appeared to him or not. And so he was either lying, or he was insane, he was completely deluded, or he was telling the truth. You really you only have those three options, and yeah. he. And he at least we know he gave his life for it. And so lying, I think, should be should be ripped down to that.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I want to shift gears on this because apologetics is such an important part of where we're going as a church. And I think with more of more of a skeptical post-Christian society, um, we have to talk about the digital side of apologetics and how we talk to people online and how we how we share our faith in those spaces. Is it possible to do that well and if so, like, how do we do that in a, in a productive way, sharing apologetic our faith in general online?
1: Yeah, you know, and I'm one who's—I've done a lot of this. I've done a lot of trial and error with this. Um, I, I, have, I will be the first to admit that I am, and I am definitely not perfect. But what, what I've learned is, just like with anything, I think when it comes to whether you're talking to someone face-to-face or you're talking to someone online— What's more important, really, than any argument is just really listening to them, just really letting them know that you love them. And I think a way that you can love them, especially in social media, especially online, and when you're going back and forth to somebody, is to really engage with them in such a way that they know that you at least understand what they're saying, that you at least are listening to their arguments and, and, and giving them, you know, ground, giving them, you know, okay, I, I get where you're saying there. I get where you're coming from. Let me repeat this the, this back to you. I think that alone, if, if all Christians would just do that, I right. mean, I think we would see probably a revival. But sadly, <laughs> yes. if these 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 get into such prideful fights, and I and I'm, I'm admitting it myself. Sometimes, you know, you get back with somebody, and especially when someone says something that's just so ridiculous, and they say it so arrogantly, yes, <laughs> you, just, <laughs> you just want to go after them. But the struggle but, is real. But, but 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 that's the thing, and I, and I would say as long as you're doing that, it's, I think it's a fruitful ministry, but I think if you're, uh, if you can tell, you, we all know, especially, you know, I think as guys, we know and our pride's in it, and we're being competitive, and we're wanting to get the one up, and I think once that starts happening, we're not being like Christ. I think we're, right. we, have, we are no longer being an example of Christ, and so we shouldn't do that. I've actually, i backed off of, like, hardcore, long, you know, I, I would get into sometimes, sometimes hours of back and forth with unbelievers online, and I, I did that for a few years. I, f- I found that to be not as productive. I, I think one-on-one is always better if you can, but I do think I, I, I am always wanting to get, you know, Scripture out and wanting to get the Word of God out and get, you know, great arguments for the, you know, for the truth of the faith and, and the beauty of the faith to, to show just the beauty of Christianity any way I can uh, uh, online, and if unbelievers are on there you know, I like to, I've I become much more discerning when it comes to, you know, is this person genuinely seeking yeah. truth? Is this person really wanting to learn? Or is this person just wanting to, you know, troll? Is this person just wanting to, you know, doubt? Is this, is this person just wanting to kind of get in an argument, but isn't really listening? And you still love that person, you know, you, you love even them, but, you know, I'm not going to spend, you know, Thirty minutes an hour of my time, you know, I think that that can be a lot of wasting of time. Yeah. So we just, I think we, there's a lot of gray area. There's a lot of discernment with that. But but I think it would be good if all Christians were online, loving, being Christ-like, listening, and putting out, you know, their testimony and, and as as good a points as they can where they where they can.
0: Well, uh, Justin, I, I really appreciate you coming on and talking with about us about all of this. I think this has been so. Can I use the word meaty? It's been very meaty. I like that. I really like what we've discussed here. I think it's very helpful for pastors and ministry leaders because, I mean, you might be a youth pastor who's never been to seminary or even talked about this or, or, you know, maybe you have and you've just forgotten a lot of stuff. Or a music minister or, you know, volunteer in a ministry and just don't know how to deal with these questions when they come up. Uh, so I think this has been really, really helpful. So thank you so much for talking with me about this stuff.
1: Well, thank you. It's been uh, a good conversation.
0: Yeah, I, I've, I've loved it. But i got one more thing I want to do with you. Uh, one of our favorite little se- sections of the podcast called Five on the Spot. I'm going to ask you five random questions. You have no way to prepare for them. And they really don't have anything to do with much at all, except just fun stuff. <laughs> so uh, here's Five on the Spot. Are you ready to go? I'm ready. All right. Question number one. Who's your favorite theologian to quote?
1: Favorite theologian to quote is probably St. Augustine.
0: St. Augustine, really. What, what, uh, what draws you to him? He, he, has,
1: he has shown me, I think, how to love God better than anyone outside of the Scripture. Wow. And so, so his book, Confessions, is, is probably my favorite book of all time outside of the Scriptures. Wow. And so, uh, so I can quote him right here. He said, you know, the, the greatest, one of the greatest quotes from him is, Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their, re- their rest in you.
0: Wow, that's good. That's really good. which that that actually is a great segue into my second question. Theologically speaking, did you choose to be on this podcast, or did this podcast choose you? <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> great question. Great answer, I mean, great answer. All right. Uh, which question three, which country, which country produces the best food in your opinion?
1: I think I like Mediterranean type food more than anything. So maybe Greece. Hummus and pita bread and chicken. So I love all all over the Middle East. And, uh, you know, we were just in Amman, Jordan, actually.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, you just came back, right?
1: And uh, Yeah, and so the, the the hummus there is just incredible. That's just my kind of food. Wow. But we've been, my wife and I have been to Greece before, too, and that food was amazing.
0: What excites you most about the church in 2017? I think all the young people that I know
1: that are just on fire for the Lord, that are serious about great people. Uh, you know great the great books the great classics and uh, diving into things like apologetics and doctrine and church history I'm just through the Bible college and through DTS and through just other context I've, I've got to know so many people that are in their 20s and 30s that are just on fire for the Lord I think that that kind of I think God can take you know just those few and and that few will will uh, could could lead to a third great awakening could lead to to a great revival in our land. So,
0: yeah, I agree with you. I I think the millennials are probably as much as they get slammed. They're probably poised to be the most powerful to make that happen.
1: Definitely.
0: I mean, they're just, they're kind of unstoppable. Um, so cool. All right. Fifth question. Most important one. What is your favorite Nickelback song? And why do you love it?
1: (laughs) The police were threatening to torture people with Nickelback in Canada. I saw your, I saw that.
0: Um, (laughs) I really only ask you that because I know I could tell kind of from your, from your Facebook post that you kind of hate them.
1: Yeah. I, like, I think they're just fun <laughs> to make fun of, but actually I, they're not that bad. Really? They, they just, they somehow just got the, they just got the full brunt of, uh, of all that. They just became like they're the so uh, easy. epitome of commercialism and, yes. and just unoriginal, just unoriginal music. I mean, they're just, they're just, they really are awful in all those ways, but, yeah. but you know, they, they don't deserve as probably as bad as they get. They're it.
0: probably <laughs> incredible musicians and delightful people. Yeah. But they have made some garbage. Yes,
1: yes.
0: <laughs> is, uh, I will go on record. I really hate them. They're no
1: Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash is my favorite.
0: No, they are no Johnny Cash, not at all. So, uh, how can people connect with you online?
1: Yeah, um, definitely. I, I try to put out you know stuff stuff whenever I can on uh, Facebook, so you can friend me on Facebook. Uh, I'm on uh, Twitter. My handle is uh, dr Doctor Justin Bass. And then um, definitely uh, you should come to Dallas Christian College and take a class from me. You should come to DTS and take Greek from me. And uh, you should read my one, my one book that, uh, that I've written. It's really my dissertation. You, you need to uh, order that online. And uh, so that way, not just my, uh, my mom and my wife has bought one. Um, <laughs> yeah, what, What's it called? What's the it's book? A fun, it's a fun book, though. It's, uh, it's actually all about the uh, descent of Christ into the underworld. Um, oh. Between his death and resurrection, it's called the battle for the keys. Christ sent into the underworld in Revelation one eighteen, but um, but oh, I, I really hey. do. I'm, I'm hoping I've got a, I've got a whole book just ready to come out, and so it's gonna it's gonna it's not out yet actually. It's it's it, it's in my mind just ready to come out, but I just need to find the right publisher. But I'm I'm really excited to do a book on some of the some of those points that we were we were talking about when it comes to uh, just the bare historical facts that we get about Jesus and about the early church. I'm, I've got some. I've got a good idea of, of a book on that, so I'm hoping that'll be my next book. So
0: that's great. Uh, yeah, I'm excited about both those books. Oh my gosh, Desc- like the the Apostles Creed. He descended into hell. That section
1: exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's that's your dissertation. About, all about how that yeah. how that is really a bad translation, but he yeah. did he did go down, but he went down in, into the underworld, not not actually what we think of as hell. But it's a but it's a it's a short book, but even though it's a dissertation, it's still it's it's interesting because of the topic.
0: Yeah, is that on Amazon? Mm-hmm. Oh man, I'm getting that. Okay, I'll put it. I'll put the links into the show notes of this podcast so everybody else can go link to it as well. Cool. Uh, that's exciting. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much again for being on the show, and uh, everybody, thank you for listening. And we'll be back in about two weeks. Um, have a merry Christmas, and we will see you in 2017. See you.